The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Set forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. And may the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Father, I would like to talk about vaccines tonight. As, as you know, there has been a great deal of controversy surrounding events at the local Society of St. Pius X location across the river from us in northern Kentucky, where uh, apparently there was an outbreak of this chickenpox virus at the school and the, the church there. And the northern Kentucky Health Department actually stepped in and mandated that those who had not been vaccinated, those were who were not immune from this virus, were barred from attending school for a certain amount of time, barred from extracurricular activities. The health department actually mandated that the school cancel extracurricular activities. Uh, some of the members of the parish and school actually filed a lawsuit saying that the state did not have the authority to to force them, essentially, to get these vaccinations. They said it was a violation of their First Amendment rights. Uh, I believe they lost the lawsuit and things have kind of stopped there. But, uh, Father, I would like to get your position on this, what the Catholic position on this idea, where they're saying that uh, it is immoral, it is wrong to receive these chickenpox vaccines and others like it because they are derived from aborted fetal cells. So what's your take on that, Father? Is it wrong, is it immoral to receive a vaccine that is somehow derived from aborted fetal cells? Well, there certainly is a matter of morality involved in that. Um, you know, using uh, an abortion as a as a means of providing what could be a benefit to others. You know, St. Paul says it is absolutely forbidden to do something evil so that good may result from it. But uh, looking back at the at the actual history of this and the development of these vaccines uh, is kind of is interesting. You know. It's interesting and a bit instructive. Um, rubella was a very serious problem back in the 1960s. And uh, doctors noticed the connection between even uh, uh, cataracts in infants and a, a number of other serious, serious consequences of ru the rubella virus. Mm -hmm. And so there was an effort made to find uh, some type of uh, uh, a vaccine against it. And um, in Philadelphia, there was a researcher named Stanley Plotkin, who uh, it was at the, at the Weistar, I think it's called Weistar, W-I-S-T-A-R Institute in Philadelphia. 
who came up in the mid-1960s with a, uh, a vaccine. And this is how it came, it came about. He was sent the, the body of an aborted child. He himself did not have anything to do with the abortion, <clears throat> uh, but it was sent to him, probably for pathology. The reason, uh, the pretext for the abortion <clears throat> requested by the mother was the um, they determined that the fetus, as they call the baby in the womb, uh, was infected with the rubella virus. And because of that, she succeeded, even in the early 1960s, or the mid-1960s, in, in uh, having a, an abortion. And um, so the, uh, the, the aborted child, fetus, was sent to Dr. Plotkin there at the Research Institute, the Y-Star Institute. And he actually isolated the rubella virus pathogen from the uh, liver, uh, no, the kidney, I think it was from the kidney of the child that was aborted. And uh, what he did then was culture that in human cells. I don't think he cultured it in actually the, the human cells of the aborted child. Um, it's, it, it's possible that he did, but my understanding is that he cultured it in other human cells that were not the aborted child, that actually he just took he actually took the virus from the kidney of the aborted child and cultured it and then worked with it. And the process was actually rather surprising. Um, what he came up with uh, to produce rubella uh, virus that was something that uh, the body could fight effectively was that he actually cultured it at lower and lower temperatures, but not in aborted fetal cells. Um, but he cultured it. In other words, the, 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 the aborted child was actually the origin of the virus from which the, the virus was taken from that. <clears throat> and it was cultured in, uh, in uh, cell uh, stems, uh, cell lines or cell strains. Um, that I, I thought were taken from others and not from an aborted child, but I could be wrong about that. But in any case, he actually cultured it so that each generation was reproduced in a lower and lower temperature, oddly enough, with the theory that if then the result of multiple generations of this virus, maybe 12, 13, 14 generations, you'd have a virus that would have um, survived at lower and lower temperatures. For its reproduction, therefore, to replicate itself, it would be accustomed to doing so in the lower temperatures, so that when it was introduced into the human body as a vaccine, it would reproduce itself at the higher body temperature more slowly its presence there would trigger an immune response from the body, but the slowed down replication of the virus would enable the body to produce immune cells faster than the virus could reproduce itself. And actually, therefore, you'd produce immunity in the body of the recipient. Uh, 
and and severely lower the uh, drastically lower the likelihood of actual infection in the sense that the the virus can multiply out of control. So you see the the theory there actually uh, was what worked out that that was what actually happened. So they um, produced this vaccine in this way. There was another researcher to the same place, this Y-Star Institute in Philadelphia named uh, Hayflick, mm-hmm. who was working on something along pretty much the same lines, but with a different disease also, the same process. So actually, uh, he also received the um, body of an aborted baby. The baby was aborted independently of him. It wasn't aborted for him. It wasn't aborted for this, this, this purpose. It just was sent to him as, a, as a, I guess, a pathologist. And uh, he isolated a, uh, a virus in the, in the lung tissue, the baby. But again, my understanding may be faulty, but my best understanding is that the, the virus was taken from the baby's lung tissues and not actually cultivated within the uh, within the st- cell line or cell strain of the baby itself. Now, um, the removal of a pathogen, you know, from a even an aborted child, you know, does not. As long as the child wasn't killed or put to death for that purpose, but if someone received that, and as a result of an abortion, and uh, the purpose of him receiving it was to maybe study the uh, the pathogen, and um, this would this would be a different case from actually putting a child to death for the sake of using the the parts of this child for research, and that's not what happened with either Plutkin or Hayflick. I understand. So um, they did not have anything to do with the abortion directly and perhaps would have uh, aborted and, and not approved it, for all I know. I have no idea what their thoughts were on the subject. <clears throat> but uh, simply from a medical point of view, this would, would have not have been, uh, you know, uh, uh, taken directly from uh, performing an abortion for the sake of providing them with the, uh, with the material they needed to operate on. So, the uh, the question arises then, as this has gone on, now th- these these strains that were developed are not immortal. They they do die out eventually, right? And uh, but for thirty years or so, they can use the same cell strain to uh, to um, draw the pathogen from and and work with the pathogen and actually produce vaccines from the pathogen there. Um, to what extent is it immoral to do this? Well, obviously, anything that would encourage the abortion of a child is evil. And um, anything that would have any certainly direct role in causing the abortion or occasioning the abortion would be wrong, would be morally wrong, right? But the more removed one is from the actual cause, the less responsibility one has for where the thing started. I mean, one can be completely against abortion. <clears throat> and nonetheless, because of some grave proportionate evil, take advantage of the vaccine that is, was derived from these, uh, from these um, 
lines, you might say. In fact, I think I think it would be true to say that these were the only two cases of an aborted child uh, providing um, the source of these cell uh, cell strains, mm -hmm. at least with regard to the origin of the pathogen goes. I don't know that there are others. Now, it could be that in more recent times now, with the, with the proliferation of abortion, more of this is going on. Um, I don't know that, though. Do you? Are you aware of that? Um, I believe I read, Father, that there are several other vaccines that are derived along the same lines. The uh, yeah. the rubella vaccine, one of well, the... Well, Plotkin was the, the origin of rubella. One of the rabies uh, vaccines as well. So I, th I think there were there were several of them, but uh, yeah. I believe they all may be connected to that initial... Well, they, they all went back. They were all derived from one of these two. I, I, I believe think. so. But yes, yes, there are other yes, vaccines right. that were derived from them. That's true. That's fine. In fact, the uh, cultivation of the viruses necessary to produce the vaccines took place in fetal cells. As I mentioned, there were two abortions that took place in the early 1960s, one of them in England and the other one in Sweden. And the researchers in Philadelphia received uh, a number of those cells to work with in their research. And uh, the abortions were not carried out for the sake of the research, but they were chosen by the mothers uh, in England and in Sweden because of the uh, rubella virus that had infected the little children in the womb. And uh, it's still murder, no doubt about it. It's still horribly wrong to do that. Um, but the fact that the researchers received the cells did not make them guilty of the abortions. And uh, the fact is, though, that uh, such viruses do need cells to grow in, and they use the embryonic uh, fibroblast cells, uh, which are perfectly suited to the growing of uh, human uh, viruses. And as a matter of fact, um, they multiply many more times than a regular cell. Um, I guess uh, an actual uh, human cell will multiply as perhaps as many as 50 times, but uh, the uh, embryonic fibroblast cells will uh, reproduce many more times than that. And the cell, the, uh, the virus needs a host cell in order to replicate itself. And it is uh, from the continuation of these cells, which continue to replicate uh, from the from the 1960s, the same strain of, uh, of cells, the same line of cells is continuing to replicate itself and the viruses continue to replicate within those cells. Um, the morality of it, well, again, the question is the, uh, the actual proximity of the involvement in the initial crime of the abortion which at this point is reduced to practically zero in those who actually are receiving the vaccine, that they have no complicity uh, in, the, in the initial abortions. So um, can those viruses um, replicating in those cells produce vaccines that can morally be used today uh, for the sake of uh, of uh, inoculating, say, protecting against 
um, highly contagious and lethal diseases, they can morally be used from the standpoint of uh, their origins. Um, but the question is whether or not they really do protect against disease or do more harm than good, which is another question entirely. So um, would it be sinful for someone to use that vaccination for the sake of immunizing, seeking immunity to one of these terrible diseases, even fatal diseases. Um, no, it would not be today. If there were a proportionate reason to do so, um, and there could be, because of the outbreak of a plague or, or a terrible disease, it could be justified. But you see, the question is not only a matter of the origin of the pathogen that was used, right? The question it has to do today also largely with the nature of the vaccines themselves, the benefit of them, whether they are uh, actually um, deadly in themselves, whether they're dangerous in themselves, whether they contain elements in themselves which are dangerous and harmful. There's a lot of debate about that too. Some are even questioning whether or not they may cause uh, autism. autism or, you know, some other sure. uh, debilities. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a fierce debate going on about that. There are those who fiercely favor vaccinations mm -hmm. and there are those who fiercely oppose them. And, um, I mean, I have my own take on that. I, I Which is? Well, my own <laughs> personal take is I'd like one should do without them as far as one possibly can. I mean, the idea of forcing children to have the uh, chickenpox vaccination, mm -hmm. I think, can, um, you know, especially when the government steps in and requires it, mm -hmm. as is happening now in New York, as we know, with uh, de Blasio. And, yes. Uh, um, I mean, this can be a means of government oppression. It can certainly be a means of government control. Remember, I mean, I think it was even, was it Lenin or Stalin? It might have been Lenin who said, we can, we can bring government control through health care, right? That we'll use health care as the issue to enforce, uh, to impose and enforce government control. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this is a serious business when the government gets involved in the vaccination business and starts legislating things, you know, as far as what they're going to inject in your children and you. So, um, <clears throat> but I mean, I do, I do see that uh, there are vaccines, if they are, they are legitimately done and they, they, they can be beneficial. They can be very beneficial. They can save lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some diseases that were rampant, some deadly diseases that were rampant before, which are now rather rare. And, um, and we can trace that uh, that change to the rise of vaccines. Right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not I'm not one to say that they are of no value, but I do uh, share with many people a misgiving uh, misgivings about governments being involved in producing vaccines and then forcing them upon populations. Okay. Well, Father, this definitely seems to answer one of the questions, at least as far as these vaccines being derived from fetal <coughs> cells aborted fetal cells, but you're saying that, that they can be justified if there is a sufficient reason to do so. There has to be a very serious reason. And this so, would be the teaching of the Catholic Church. This is, I'm not making this up. Okay. If so, there's a proportionate reason, um, 
you know, there are many evils involved in things that happen in the world. Um, and um, there, there are things that we would not want to be involved in in any way. But the church acknowledges that insofar as any contribution that an individual would make to the original evil is so remote that there's virtually no responsibility for it, no causality for it, <clears throat> but the result would be highly beneficial, even life-saving for an individual, it would be moral to use it. So how do we quantify this proportionate reason, though? Because the, the pro-vaccine crowd, of course, would say that, um, you know, this, this is automatically a proportionate reason because even if there's no outbreak, whatever, we're preventing all of that. We're being proactive. Whereas, um, you know, it seems there could be some that say, well, let's, if there is an outbreak, then, then we will, we'll, we'll do the vaccination. So how do you quantify this proportion? Well, the, the pro-vaccine, okay, if, it's, if it's merely a question of the proportionate reason, so yes, if, the, if there are diseases that could be fatal or really debilitating for older people or people with weak immune systems and so on, if there are, if there are tangible benefits and they're quite certain, then yes, there would be a compelling reason, I think, to use them, right? But I think the pro-vaccine people can go overboard in having a little bit too much trust in um, mm -hmm. government agencies. I mean, we, we have to always come back to this idea. Uh, no matter how loudly the socialists think that we're going to create some kind of a paradise of equality, which is a nightmare, really, because there's no equity where there is equality. I mentioned that last time. It's not a matter of what one deserves. It's a matter of what one the government decides to give you. And the government is politicians. The government is made of politicians and their bureaucrats, right? And there, there's danger involved there. I mean, the founders of our own country recognize that very clearly, that wherever you have nations run by politicians by politics and their uh, their the bureaucrats they they appoint to uh, you know in charge of policy and so on I mean you have serious dangers and uh, even the most ardent socialist I think if you put it in those terms so you want the politicians determining uh, what the country can produce and what of it you can have in terms of food, clothing, shelter. You want the politicians dictating to you what you're allowed to have in terms of health care and so on. And I think even most ardent socialists today would say, well, no, that's not what I want. You want the bureaucrats to decide what food can be on the shelf at your supermarket. Well, they would say, no, I don't want that. Well, what, what do you mean then by socialism? What is your idea of socialism? And ultimately, they tell you, well, they want the government to control these things. And that's exactly what they're saying. They're just using language that masks the reality, the horrible reality of it all. Mm -hmm. um, but you get the government involved in, in, in health care then. And again, you have government agencies, you have government politicians, and you have government bureaucrats involved. And uh, you have not only legislation, and you have enforcement. You know, it all comes down to the political process, which can be very corrupt, as we know. And that is why our country is uh, was framed the way it was, in order to try to provide as much of a check on that as we can, because the, the Founding Fathers were under no illusions about the reality of original sin and the consequences, right? Um, 
So again, the pro-vacciners have to be very careful uh, not to put the syringe in the hands of the wrong people. Right? And Father, I and back it up with a gun. Yeah, that's, sure. that, that's very, very dangerous. So I'm much less ardent about this whole issue of uh, enthusiastic about government-controlled vaccines and vaccinations than the pro-vacciners are. Right. But also, I do recognize that in themselves, vaccines correctly done and for a sufficient reason, but that gets back to your question of proportionate good, mm -hmm. um, is something in itself helpful and beneficial. Father, I think another question in this vaccine debate is the actual effectiveness of the vaccines themselves. Right. You mentioned the, the rubella vaccine, I believe, was in 1964, I think, where there was um, perhaps a, a nationwide outbreak of rubella. It was causing all kinds of problems. And when they had this this vaccine created, they actually uh, declared the, um, the disease eradicated. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's made a bit of a comeback. I believe in the 1990s, there were there were several outbreaks in the 2000s, and that, that's what's happening now in New York with, with de Blasio, is there's a rubella outbreak there. So there are some, mm -hmm. of course, the pro-vaccine crowd will say, well, this but is a But these are probably those who were not vaccinated. Right? That's what the pro-vaccine crowd will say. But then the anti-vaccine crowd will say, hey, look at this from a logical standpoint. What are you doing? You're infecting, you're injecting the, the, the virus into your body, of course you're going to get cases of this. It, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make any logical sense, that was So they claim the vaccination is causing this right. in cases. Well, right. I mean, there, there is truth to both, to both sides. I mean, the vaccination can. Mm -hmm. Vaccinations can, uh, I don't know what the statistics are, <clears throat> but there are those who can sick, you know, fall victim to the disease from vaccinations. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a, a disputed point, right? So there are certain dangers in that too. Right. But my, my understanding is that the, the um, rise of these diseases is happening among primarily Orthodox Jewish populations who do not vaccinate. That's what I understand. Is that right? So de Blasio is invoking the, the arm of the law now to compel them to comply. Is that right? Yes, John. And that's scary. Yes. You know, that is scary. I believe, Father, even uh, even Governor Cuomo was questioning the legality of this move. So that tells you. Well, uh, there you go. <laughs> even the one who uh, wants abortion up right at the birth, right? right? He's questioning of this. Uh, well, that's uh, that's uh, so that's even a scarier thought in a way. <laughs> but, you know, um, one has to be careful about this. In the old days, people knew how to handle these things. I mean, there were a lot of, there was a great deal of intermortality, of course, in the old days, too, uh, 50, 100 years ago. But, um, you know, I, I know people who don't vaccinate when they... When one of the children comes down with uh, with chicken box, they'll have chicken box parties. They yes. say, well, let's get it. They're all open with chicken box <laughs> and get it while they're young because um, if they, then they'll be immune. And if they get it when they're older, it'll be harder and then even deadly. You know, if an older person my age caught chicken pox, it could kill him or her, right? And I know some, and I'm related to some people who caught the chicken box when they were late six, 20s and early 30s. And it was, it was hard on them. You know, it was pretty, pretty, they're very, very sick, okay? Whereas you get a child of seven or eight years old who catches the chicken box and they're sick for a few days, or they feel sick for a few days. They keep playing. <laughs> they play right through it. They feel miserable, but nonetheless, it, it's not devastating to them and generally not life-threatening. So there are parents who say, well, let's take advantage of the fact that uh, little Bobby over here 
<clears throat> has chicken pox, let's call all our friends we know and let's have a chicken pox party and get it over. Now it sounds cruel but to some people, but actually they, the children then, uh, with very little cost to themselves, uh, come through and they're at that point, uh, you know, self-inoculated as it were, uh, immunized to chicken pox. The problem later, of course, is shingles. Because of the uh, varicella virus in the body, I guess, uh, they have to deal with the question of shingles. <clears throat> but, it, you know, shingles is very painful, but it's later on in life, it's not as dangerous as catching the chicken pox at the same age later on in life. Um, now, you know, you take the case of Our Lady of the Assumption, uh, where they had high school students, <clears throat> seniors in high school, who wanted to play basketball, but they were excluded for the last several games of their basketball season because, let's say, they weren't vaccinated. One, one young man in particular, uh, which uh, precipitated the lawsuit of his uh, parents, I guess. The parents entered the lawsuit against the, uh, against the health department there. Mm -hmm. Well, now, in a case like that, if, the, if, if a youngster gets to be 18, 19 years old and hasn't had that yet, hasn't had the chickenpox virus yet, and has not been inoculated yet, then I would begin to be concerned that that person may go on through his 20s and 30s, maybe even older, and catch the virus at that point. There's a certain value in, in you know, getting the immunization early, if not by the vaccine, at least by catching the disease, you know. So when, when youngsters are getting uh, out of the age of youngsters and getting to young adulthood, I mean, my own personal thought would be, well, if I were in that situation, I'd want to catch this disease now and get it over with before I got 10 years older, 20 years older, 30 years older, when it could actually be a threat to life. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, again, that should be my choice. It shouldn't be the government uh, legislating what I have to do okay. and uh, sending somebody over with a syringe and a gun you know, to, to force me to be uh, vaccinated. I, I just... Don't buy that. Sure. Father, another point on this, perhaps perhaps the final point, but uh, there are those who will say we're not against vaccines in principle. Um, you know, the, the, the case that you just mentioned, that sounds perfect, perfectly reasonable. But either, there, there are those who will still say, yes, this idea sounds reasonable and not against that in principle. Go going ahead and getting the vaccine because it would be better to go ahead and get it now rather than wait till later when it's more serious. But they'll say, it, it's not just that we're getting the vaccine, it's that we're getting all, all of these other additives in the vaccine. Right. They say that they're, they're, well, they're mercury, they're mercury right. there's other, uh, all these other dangerous medicals, chemicals, mm. whatever in there, and it's not even worth it. It's, it's more of a risk to get all of this, right. this other... And that's a judgment that they can make. Okay. And um, now, I do believe there are other chemicals in there, including mercury or some... some <clears throat> form of it, um, but uh, some compounded mercury, perhaps. And uh, there are legitimate concerns about that. And, uh, you know, one can, one can just say, well, we can trust the government to be sure that everything is safe, you know. But... Um, scary. Yes, uh, that's... There are those who say, no, no, I, I cannot trust. Uh, and really, it comes down to a matter of trust. 
So uh, they have, well, they would have the right to refuse that. In some cases, if they think it's dangerous to their children, they'd have an obligation, moral obligation to refuse it, you know. Sure. Um, some of the vaccinations, forced vaccines, are, are used in the military. Well, even. I think some of the earliest examples of forced vaccinations and uh, continued, not just earliest examples, but continued examples of forced vaccinations occur in the military. And they have a uh, captive audience, you might say. Um, and again, you know, would they would they have the right to refuse in the military? I actually had a uh, an army uh, captain or major calling me from somewhere in the world about that very question some years ago, and uh, there would be dire consequences if he refused that vaccination. Hmm. But um, you know, I, I don't I don't know what the current policy is, but it probably hasn't become any less. Um, what should I say? Uh, any, any, it hasn't eased up probably in the meantime. Now, look, there are people watching the, this program right now who know about these things far more thoroughly than I do and could correct me and what I've said. And I would appreciate it if they would, if they know different, know something different is the truth. But, but, uh, with regard to the origin of the, uh, the, the pathogen that they used in creating these vaccines, uh, with regard even to the practice in the military, I'd be very interested in knowing, you know, what what is actually happening out there right now. So if, if we had people who were willing to send information on that subject, I'd be very, very interested and grateful to them. Mm -hmm. Father, just another personal anecdote along those same lines. I can tell you my experience as a professional sign language interpreter. We do a lot of work in the medical field, mm -hmm. and uh, they are very strict on their vaccine policy. I myself did, didn't have all the vaccinations that they required and they essentially said, well, we're not going to force you to get these vaccinations, but if you don't get the vaccinations, you're not going to work in the medical field. Right, right. So um, mm -hmm. it's, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of power, a lot of coercion. Yes, right. Whole, right. Well, they can so, bring pressure. You know. Definitely. So. No doubt. But here you are. Yeah, hey, I'm still here alive. So. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Well, Father, let's move on then. Um, I wanted to, to mention this, uh, our never-ending Francis... Francis Follies, just just recently, I believe this just came out today, that uh, Francis has approved the uh, a retreat to be hosted in the actually in the Vatican by the uh, Archbishop of, of Canterbury. This Anglican uh, minister mm -hmm. is going to actually host a retreat in the Vatican with Francis. With Francis, Francis is going to deliver some some message there. Okay. Uh, at the end of the retreat, they're going to sign Bibles together. And um, and all of this, so they're essentially going to be co-mastering this this retreat for, uh, I believe, it's some South Sudan uh, political leaders who, who will be attending this retreat. So, what's what's your thoughts on this, Father? This Anglican minister <coughs> giving a retreat within the Vatican. I'm surprised the Anglican minister would lower himself to be involved with Francis in doing this. Um. As far as Francis goes, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. There are places in the world where Francis has authorized the uh, so-called Catholics, the modern Catholics, and the Anglicans uh, actually uh, kind of cross-pollinating in their churches, <laughs> receiving each other's Eucharist and so on. 
And of course, you know, the church is long ago pronounced on the subject of Anglican orders. They don't have valid priests. They don't have a mass. They can't consecrate the body and blood of Christ. They just have a communion service, which is not holy communion. It's just the, the wafer and the, and the wine is all it is, you know. Um, but, you know, this has a long history with the Novus Ordo Pontiffs. Uh, I don't know that you recall, well, you wouldn't, you probably weren't even born yet, Tom, but um, the fact is that Paul VI had the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, who is just basically a, a layman heretic, uh, styling himself an archbishop, with, which Catholics do not recognize. And he had him on the stage with him at a Wednesday audience in the in the in the audience hall. And he had he not only had this this layman uh, Archbishop of Canterbury um, present there <clears throat> with him side by side, uh, co-pontificating over this Wednesday audience, but he had him stand with him and give the the blessing of the people together. And then Paul VI actually took that ring, that famous ring that Francis kept jerking away. Of course, it wasn't the same ring. Francis has his own ring to do that with. <clears throat> but Paul VI had his ring, and he took that ring and he put it on the finger of the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury and had him wearing the ring of the fisherman. Now, if that isn't, doesn't make somebody suspect of heresy, I don't know what does. <clears throat> uh, this, is, this is absolutely vile what this man did <clears throat> and uh this is just it's emblematic of everything else he did to the church you know selling out the church entirely selling out the faith selling out our lord <clears throat> and so um for now <clears throat> francis to be following through on what paul vi did and having the anglican archbishop of canterbury come and give a you know co-retreat with him francis in the vatican Yes, it makes perfect sense. I mean, why not? What is what is the Novus Ordo? Modernism. It's just pure modernism now. And Francis is is he's just the poster boy. I'm sorry, but he is. He's, he's like the apotheosis of modernism. He's like the embodiment, the incarnation of modernism. This man, uh, which Saint Pius X condemned as the antithesis of Catholicism. You know, the arch enemy of Catholicism. Um, <clears throat> Catholicism and modernism are like matter and antimatter. You know, they're so related that they they cannot coexist. Right? They have to, in a sense, wipe each other out. But they, <clears throat> this is exactly what modernists tried to do after Vatican II to wipe out the traditional faith. And Francis is, is now in position. He's where he is precisely because the modernist powers have determined that he's the man they're going to entrust with the job of completing the the job of exterminating the traditional Catholic religion and exterminating traditional Catholics. But he's going about this in a very, very clever and very devious way, like his machinations trying to get Pius in, the Society of St. Pius X in their modernist fold. So he will wind up with control. <clears throat> and if they think that he's not thinking in those terms, they, they're, they're totally lost. Um, they have to understand what's going on here. But in, in any case, um, they, they, they're going to issue some signed Bibles at the end. Heaven only knows what version of the translation they're going to sign together, right? 
as though they have a common faith, um, which is, a, a well, I suppose Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury probably do. That's the sad part of it. Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's an Anglican, of course, probably do have the same faith. In fact, the Archbishop of Canterbury might have beliefs that are somewhat closer to Catholicism than Francis does. He might be more radically anti-Catholic even than the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, but in any case, they're, they're going to sign with some kind of a statement, aren't they? Yes, it's okay. perfect modernist lingo. Seek that which unites, overcome that which divides. So that's what they're going to inscribe in those Bibles the they give away. That's right. Seek that which unites. Overcome that which Overcome divides. that which divides, okay. Now it's interesting, they're choosing a statement that is not anywhere in the, the sacred scripture, right? right? They're choosing that ecumenical statement that, that they, the modernists, have devised. Mm -hmm. And they're going to basically write that in the Bible, which we don't know if that translation has any anything in common with what our Lord actually said and meant, okay, long ago, but uh, with the actual sacred scripture, okay. But they are going to basically put that, inscri uh, inscribe that in their Bibles, uh, which is a negation, a negation of what is in the true scriptures. That's true. Right? Mm-hmm. Because the meaning of that for a modernist is <clears throat> drop the dogmas that divide us. We have to stop the dogmas that divide us. They're in the way. We have to, we have to simply make them go away. And we have to retain only what we can hold in common. And this is the formula for the one world religion. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that is a, a, bald-faced rejection of what everything that is really in sacred scripture it, yeah. uh, that divides the one true religion from all the false religions uh, devised by mankind. It almost seems like that statement right there could just sum up modernism yeah. as a whole. That one statement right there. But I, I wanted to read a few of these, these other things real quick, just perfect modernist lingo. They say that the event is... Uh, it's being termed as both ecumenical and diplomatic, and they say that it's an occasion for encounter and reconciliation. Ooh, beautiful is ooh, that? Ooh. That's so meaningful, Tom. Oh, what a mess. Yeah. Well, this is what you're dealing with. It's it's just modernism, and it's uh, not something that uh, Catholics could have anything to do with, you know. But um, it it really does. I'd say peg both Francis and the modern mentality of the ecumenists. Mm -hmm. So uh, in any case, I, I pity those poor individuals who are coming from Sudan to go to make that retreat because, well, I don't know if they're arriving with any faith, but if they do, they're sure going to leave without any faith if this is what's, this is a brainwashing session for their, uh, for, uh, under the guise of a retreat, I'm afraid. Sure. Well, Father, perhaps we can end with that, but in closing, to, uh, if one actually wanted to make a good beneficial retreat, perhaps we can give another short little uh, snippet of, of our retreats that are upcoming here in Cincinnati. Yeah. Since we talked about it last time, we actually had uh, several, several emails from different viewers requesting forms. I've actually mailed out over a dozen forms this past oh, week good, to, good. to those who are interested. We so. do have the ladies' retreat. 
starting on June 19th, if I'm not mistaken. So. Is that right? I believe so. June 19th and running, uh, that that's the evening of Thursday or Wednesday, I think. Going through Thursday, Friday, and then ending midday, Saturday. Mm -hmm. And then a week later, on June 26th, we had the men's retreat beginning. It's short. It's enough to actually make a bit of a retreat, but it, it, it makes it more accessible to those who have many responsibilities in life. Mm -hmm. So we kind of balanced the two, you know. And um, I know that those who come will be glad they came. Um, those who've come in the past have always said that they, they thought it was very worthwhile and they appreciate the fact that they came. So um, I would encourage the ladies to um, give that time. It's a matter of giving that time to our Lord is what it is. And uh, the men also, the week later, to give that time to our Lord for the sake of their souls and bringing their souls closer to God, uh, to increase their faith and their hope and their charity. And of course, later in the summer, we have the summer camp for boys and the summer camp for girls, which is uh, a bit of a retreat for them, but also there's a lot of fun involved. And uh, again, I think the children, uh, well, I know they're well taken care of, well provided for, and certainly well fed. <laughs> and they do have a, have a good time, but they also get a very healthy uh, help, helping of faith, the faith too, with Mass, the sacraments, and the catechism, and good example from their counselors too. Men we've worked with for years and we know thoroughly. Um, and uh, they're there for the reason, for the benefit of the youngsters. Sure. They're there for the faith. Yeah. So uh, I encourage people to take advantage of that. I, I ask them also, since we paused for a minute here, to pray for those who are gravely ill. We have been praying for a little boy named Adam Dittar, and uh, Adam passed away just yesterday morning in California. And so I ask you to pray for him and his family. Uh, heroic, he fought a heroic battle against leukemia, but uh, our Lord called him. And uh, I know our Lord is compensating him, wiping every tear from the eye, and he's now in the uh, everlasting life with the joy and the beauty and the glory of the angels. So uh, we uh, wept for Adam while he was suffering, but he's not suffering now. But for his family, it's it's hard. So, so please keep keep them all in your prayers. Yes, Father. Thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate your time. You're welcome, Tom. Thank you. No problem. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.